All right. Good morning, guys. You guys doing okay? All right, good. Thank you. Thanks, uh, Pastor Josh, for the opportunity. Hey, got a lot of material to work through today. I'm, uh, I'm excited. I'm, I'm privileged to spend time on the Word with you guys today. Um, go ahead and grab your Bible. We're just going to hit the ground running. We're going to work in Habakkuk chapter 2, okay? So real quick, if you don't have a Bible, if you don't, uh, if you don't have one that you brought with you, there should be a black Bible in a seat back pocket somewhere around you. Go ahead and grab that thing. If you don't own a Bible, feel free to take that home with you today after church. That's our gift to you, Okay. In those black Bibles, we're going to be on page 786 for Habakkuk chapter 2. Uh, as you're turning there, I want, I want to retell a story that some of you may already be familiar with. January of last year, so almost 15 months ago now, um, myself along with four others from Freshwater, we, t- we touched down at the Puebla International Airport in Mexico. Uh, due to bad weather, we had spent the night before in the Houston International Airport. If you want a little bit more information, I slept on a, a bench in a Chinese restaurant, okay? Kind of a rough night. But, but anyway, so we touched down and we, uh, we made our way down to Topeka, Mexico. Uh, we were there doing a disciple-making trip. As some of you guys know, Freshwater sent teams there for about three years. We had partnered with two churches in our, in our goal to make disciples. And so I was privileged to be on one of those teams. Now, I've done a decent amount of traveling and uh, been on some international, international mission trips. I've been doing mission work for about 20 years. So this wasn't, this wasn't really my first rodeo in that way, but, but there's something I experienced on, on this trip in Topeka that was brand new to me. Uh, something that was kind of bizarre and, and compelling and heartbreaking all in one. I'm talking, of course, about the baby doctor. So, so if you're unaware of what the baby doctor is, I want to get you ready for that category in Jeopardy, okay? So, so this is a weird thing that popped up. I believe in the 1940s, some Mexican nuns were working in a hospital, and there was a picture of, of like baby Jesus, some art or whatever, and they said that this art started talking to them. And, and so they deduced that this was the baby Jesus, and, and his job was to heal people, okay? So the story grew and grew until we have this, this kind of this big deal that you can go visit now in Topeka. And, and this baby doctor story, it's, it's really kind of a cult. It, it has changed the local economy in some major ways. It's a big business. Uh, people are literally being bused into town, and so they have these big buses rented out, and it's just full of people to come come see the El Nino doctor, all right, as they call it. And um, some of these people are just Catholic people that are coming to see the shrine. Uh, some of them are tourists, got people out there taking selfies and stuff. Some of them are visitors who are just desperately sick. Got a few pictures you guys are seeing there. And so these these desperate people who are sick and broken, they've arrived with the hope that the baby doctor will heal them. So this main Catholic church where this is all going down, uh, it's quite a sight to behold. It's right there on the city square, so you can literally go buy cotton candy and go to church in one outing. And on Sunday Mass in particular... It is quite the show. They have these big vendor tents. I don't know if that's on there, but these big vendor tents get put up just outside the church where you can go buy a baby doctor. And then what you're supposed to do is you buy this little baby doctor doll and you go pay money to the priest to have it bless this doll. And then you take this plastic made-in-China little baby doctor doll and you put it in a uh, prominent spot in your house maybe. And while you sleep at night, the baby doctor walks around your house and it heals you and your family of your sickness. And this is what they believe. So, so you can see in my pictures that you can, you can buy baby doctors of all shapes and sizes. Uh, and it's like I told you, this is weird, but it's compelling because people are showing up by the thousands to see this. And it's really kind of a buzz of activity. And it's heartbreaking because I'm standing there watching poor people. they got sick kids, people missing limbs and blind and deaf and crutches and all this stuff. And, um, 
And they're showing up, buying these dolls. These people are living in, in poverty, and they're, they're giving their money to the priest to bless this doll in the hopes that it's going to help them get better. And this is a sick and twisted business, and we know that it's not going to work. That made-in-China doll isn't going to fix anything, right? So we know that it's a fool's errand to waste time and money on such created things like that. But if you're a Christian and you're paying attention, then you know that idolatry is alive and well in 2017, just as it was in Habakkuk's day. So if you've been with us in this series, then you know we've been working through the book of Habakkuk. So I want to do a brief summary real quick to set up the text for today. We know Habakkuk was a minor prophet in the Old Testament, and prophets often spoke directly with God, just like here in this book. So God's chosen people at this point have broken into two kingdoms. You've got Israel in the north and Judah in the south. We're talking about the southerners today, Judah, okay? King Josiah was their king, and he was a good leader and a godly man, but he died. And when he died, the, st- the nation just starts to unravel like a cheap Kmart towel. Things are not looking good, okay? It's going downhill quick. And Habakkuk doesn't like what he's seeing at all, so he starts crying out to God, and he wants an answer as to why the chosen people are, are living in sin and suffering in their captivity. And he says, God, why don't you do something about this? And the Lord responds, and he says, I am doing something. In fact, you won't even believe what I'm doing. I'm raising up the Chaldeans, which we know they're an evil group of warfighters from Babylon. The Chaldeans are going to be used to attack and really punish Judah for their sin. So Habakkuk doesn't like that at all. And he says, the Chaldeans, they're even worse than we are. How can you use those dirtbags to teach us a lesson? That's, that's my paraphrase, right? And so God says, hey, I'm God. I'm sovereign. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I'm going to accomplish my will on the earth. And there's really nothing you can do to stop it. And in God's response in Habakkuk chapter 2-4, we see the main theme of this book we've been studying, and really the big idea through this whole series is the righteous shall live by faith. This is God's expectation of us. Regardless of what we see that's going on in the news or the world around us, the righteous will live by faith. So God continues his response to Habakkuk in chapter 2, and we see that most of the chapter here is just God talking about the Chaldeans. God is describing them and some of their attributes, and in doing so, he's really mocking them and condemning their evil ways. So really what we see here in the nation of Babylon is an example of what not to do. So God's mocking the Babylonians, the people that he's going to use to punish Judah. And in this section, in chapter 2, we have what's called the five woes. So, so in this condemning description that God has for them, he uses these five woes to tell us about the Chaldeans and their evil ways. So if you've been with us, you know that in verses 6 through 8, we saw the danger of greed. In verses 9 through 11, the danger of comfort. And then 12 through 14 was about the danger of misguided effort. How are we going to use our time and talent and treasure and energy? Are we going to do something that matters for eternal value, or are we going to squander it? And last week, Pastor Josh talked about the danger of influence. Not, not just how we influence others, but who influences us. And today, we're going to finish out the text in chapter 2 and talk about the danger of idolatry and this fifth and final woe. So read along with me in Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 18 through 20. God says, What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake, to a silent stone, Arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. 
So again, this text is God describing the Chaldeans. So this isn't about Mormons or ISIS or your neighbors you don't like. We can't just kind of bend God's word however we want. This is a text about the Chaldeans. But just like we've done with the last four woes, we can, we can look at today's text and see what we can learn from it. So as you've all heard, those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it, right? So we want to see what the Chaldeans are doing wrong here so we can avoid those mistakes. And again, in verse 18, God asks the question. He says, what prophet is an idol? So for the believer who trusts in the God, the God of the Bible that we know here, the obvious answer that's implied is none. So, so what prophet is an idol? None prophet, right? Okay? I know that's poor English. Uh, but this section goes on to say that these guys would make their own idols. They'd often make them out of wood and stone, gold and silver. And, and the Babylonians had a lot of false gods. And these man-made idols were usually a representation of their pagan gods. So they had a god of war, a god of fertility, and like a sun god and love god and all that stuff. And these idols represented their false gods. And we know that there's no profit in following such a thing. So verse 18 goes on to say that even though these little idols were obviously man-made, they can't speak, they can't heal, they can't really do anything at all other than just sit there on a shelf. So these idols couldn't do anything, and yet the people still trusted in them. And it's no different today. So if I build a fancy pillar in my backyard, it's not going to help me win the lottery. Or I can go on Amazon right now and order a little golden Buddha belly thing. and It's not going to bring me any luck, right? And we know that the baby doctor can't heal our friends down in Topeka. So, so back to the text, God goes on to say in verse 18, he says, What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. Now, I thought that was interesting that God called the image a teacher of lies. And I wondered, what's that mean, a teacher of lies? So I, I had to do some digging for this, but I think I'm on to something, I hope. So we know, for starters, that idols are deceptive in nature. And, and those who believe in idols, they're really believing lies. You don't need to turn there, but listen to this. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8 that, that to a believer, an idol is nothing. So, so golden Buddha or totem poles or whatever, it doesn't mean anything to us. It's just a created thing, right? But to an unbeliever, it is something. It is an object that endears their affections. So you don't, you don't, you don't, need, to, um, you don't need to look that up, but I could hop, let me, let me talk about what this looks like, okay? I could hop on a supersonic jet, and I could shoot down at Topeka right now, and I could go right up in front of everyone, the priest, the sick people, the dying, the hurt, and I could go buy one of those baby doctor dolls, throw it on the ground, and step on its head. And that sounds kind of sadistic, I know. But, but that doll isn't going to curse me. It's a little piece of plastic, right? It's not going to do anything. The only thing that will ha- probably happen is I'll get beat up by the locals. But, but that little idol isn't going to do anything, right? We know that that idol is nothing. But to them, to the people that are endeared to this thing, it is something. It, it, it means a lot to them. They would be horrified to see me treat the baby doctor like that. And their faces would immediately tell us how they felt about what I did. So listen to me, idols are quickly revealed in our lives when someone else desecrates the created things that we worship and love. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8 that idols are nothing to believers. But if you keep on trucking over to chapter 10, really good chapter on idolatry. We don't have time for it all, but I want to read verses 19 and 20 out of 1 Corinthians 10. Paul says, he says, um, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. So what's this mean? Paul is saying that an idol, so this little hunk of rock or gold or whatever, it's not anything to Christians. But when an unbeliever opens up to this stuff, you are playing with demons. 
So, so like a Ouija board, okay? We know it's just a, a piece of cardboard that's painted. It's marketed by Hasbro Brothers. It's just a thing, right? I could take you to the factory where they're stamping them out. But when an unbeliever plays with that stuff, you're playing with fire. There is a demonic realm. There are spiritual forces behind our idols, and that is what is really dangerous for us. I found similar verbiage in 1 uh, Timothy and Deuteronomy and Leviticus. They all state demons are absolutely a driving force behind our idols. So back to the original question, what is the teacher of lies in verse 18? It's, it's the enemy who loves to steal, kill, and destroy. Demonic forces are lying to mankind. They're coercing non-believers and influencing people to put their faith and trust in a created thing, a thing that will ultimately lead to death. So in verse 19, we see that God has condemnation for such people. He says, woe to them. Woe to them. All right? And what does that word woe mean? It embodies grief, distress, and impossible escape. So woe to him who tells a wooden thing to awake or a stone to arise. And the rest of the verse obviously implies that our idols, our stuff, our created things, they're not alive, they can't teach us, they can't really help us at all. So I want to pause real quick and clarify terms. Uh, I want us to have a clear definition along with a working understanding of idolatry, okay? So I defined idolatry this way. It is worship or excessive devotion to anything other than God. Again, idolatry is worship or excessive devotion to anything other than God. So an idol is anything that replaces God, right? And we know that the most common form of idolatry in the Old Testament was, was worshiping these pagan images that we talked about that supposedly embodied pagan deities. But idolatry is much different in our culture today. So, so very, very different concept, but just like, um, just like back in the day, a lot of our idols, can be, they can either be built or bought. So I highly doubt that any of you are bowing down to some demonic god in your basement closet, right? I doubt that's happening. But even if we don't physically bow down to a statue, we know that idolatry, it's really a matter of the heart. And we can clearly see that it's, it's on the DNA of fallen humanity. Now, I don't know if this is true, but I've read that all people groups that have ever been discovered have worshipped something. So what I mean is, um, like when, when explorers find a new people group, like the ancient Mayan civilization, or some deep tribe in the jungle or whatever, uh, all these people they discovered have some sort of religious belief system. So they've got a temple, they've got like a religious center, or an idol, or something they worship. They believe in something. They've got a faith of some kind. So it's said that people groups worship something. They, they've never discovered uh, like a completely atheistic society yet, where they don't believe in anything. All right? So all people worship something. The great reformer John Calvin spoke about the human nature, and he said our hearts are just perpetual idol factories. We just crank them out, man, one after the other. So I want us to know, really, really and see that idolatry is a real thing even today, just like we talked about with the baby doctor. It is a clear and present danger for, for believers and unbelievers alike. Idols are full of deceit, and they're dangerous to us. So now what i got to do, this is the fun part, uh, we've got to let the Word of God and really the work of the Holy Spirit bear weight on us. We want to learn from the mistakes of the Chaldeans and really all of idol-driven humanity. So we're going to hold this text up like a mirror, and we're going to kind of look at ourselves, and my prayer is that the Holy Spirit will just do work on us now to help us clearly see where we have idolatry in our lives. It's like this. If, if you have cancer, you want to know about it, Right? 
I mean, cancer that's undetected is deadly. So, so you want to catch that cancer as early as possible. You want to know where it is, what kind it is, and how to fight it. And you want that cancer cut out, burned up, killed, and gone forever. You don't want it inside of you. We want the same thing with idolatry. So we need to be aware of what is going on inside of us so that we can get this stuff out of our lives. So because I love you guys, we need to do this. And uh, with grace and conviction, we're going to work through some of this and, and, th- and think about what idolatry looks like in our lives now. And we need to destroy those idols. Now, what is it that people worship instead of God? Well, for starters, Paul says in Romans 1 that, that our idols are created things. Okay, so we've traded in the glory of God for everything but God. Or we've worshipped created things rather than the creator who gave us these things. So I want to talk about three areas of our life today where we really need to carefully inspect for idols. This is not all-inclusive. There's no way I could possibly talk about all, all the idols that we face and we're stuck on today. But these are just three common areas as I studied that are kind of raising up in our society today. Okay, I promise I wasn't thinking about anybody when I wrote this. All right, Except maybe Brian Derrickson I said earlier. All right, first idol, you guys probably know it. The first idol is the idol of self. We are uppermost in our own affections. And the idol of self is huge in our culture. It would be impossible for me to overstate how awesome we think we are. So, so we just need to admit that we're selfish. And we, we love taking care of number one. And even better yet, we love when someone else takes care of number one too, right? And so this idol of self, can, it can virtually infect every area of our life. I've even seen this now. People choose churches. So, uh, jo- you know, Josh has talked before about how a lot of millennials are leaving church because they're just not they're not interested in anything that church can offer them. But of many of the millennials that do stay in church, they pick a church based on what it can do for them. Okay, and the reason why so many people our age are non-committal to a community of faith and why they don't want to pick a body of believers and to, to plug in and become a member or partner and to serve is because they don't think that one church can meet their needs. So they church hop, kind of move around. So, so if you shop for churches the way you shop for a car, so we, we think about like uh, sunroof and leather seats and alloy wheels and stuff. We look at like, well, I like this preacher and I want that music style and the kids program has got to have this. And before you know it, you're, you're basically just looking to receive and not give. And you're simply wanting to use the bride of Christ in a self-serving way. And that's idolatry. Another way we idolize self is through our self-image. The, the self-help section in Barnes & Noble is huge for a reason. Well, we want to look good in one way or another. We want our best life now. And so for, for you, maybe image is king. Your, your identity and how others view you is your idol. Maybe you're obsessed with your body, so, so you train hard because you want to be the in-shape guy who's chiseled with your shirt off, or you're the girl who knows bikini season's coming up, and you've got to take care of that. And, and your makeup and your diet and your clothes and your workout, all this is designed to make you look good. Uh, now listen to me. There's nothing wrong at all with working out. There's nothing wrong with training, with eating healthy. In fact, Paul says that, uh, Apostle Paul says that, that physical training has some value, and, and there's, there's nothing wrong with eating right. You know, we don't want to eat to gluttony or for comfort or in excess. So the problem with working out or dieting in a certain way is when those things become ultimate in our lives and they're the thing by which we identify ourselves. And that's, that's one of the reasons idolatry is such a tricky animal is because it rarely resides in morally dark things. It's usually not the bad stuff. Like I said, we're not bound down to some goat head in the basement. It's the neutral stuff that we think is fine that becomes ultimately ultimate in our lives. It's these seemingly good things that we chase after too hard. 
Another, th- another way idol plays out, the idol of self plays out in our culture is through, uh, through career or workplace. And this is big in Jeff City, man. Like you want to get yours, you're after the corner office or the next paycheck or promotion or whatever that looks like, power, and your heart is more excited about what's going on at the office than the gospel. And so career is a big idol in Jeff City. We're also selfish idolaters with our stuff. So, so your house is not a bad thing unless it's the thing. If it's the biggest draw of your time, talent, and treasure, and effort, and you want to have the nicest, nicest place on the block, and you want to fill your place up with a swimming pool, TV, motorcycles, tools, well, like whatever it is you're chasing, there's nothing wrong with owning those things unless they're the thing. Once they become ultimate in your life, that's called idolatry. Once the toys become first in your affections, you're out of line. So, so let me ask you this. What brings you joy or peace or comfort? What's something you own that you feel you can't live without or, or something you really wish God would give you? Where do you derive your value and worth? If the answer to any of that is, is not God, then it's an idol and you have to get rid of it. So the first idol is self. The second idol I want to talk about is relationships. And sometimes we can do this where the relationship itself or the person in the relationship is an idol. And so the first one I want to talk about is a significant other. I've seen people where their, their husband, wife, boyfriend, girlfriend, or even a dog is their idol. It's, I mean, it's all about them. Life is ordered around this other thing that you have a relationship with. So <laughs> men, I want to talk straight to you guys for a second. If you think that there is some combination, like a unicorn combination of a woman who, who is beautiful and does all the cooking and cleaning and is everything that your mom wasn't and she fulfills all your wants and needs and she makes 150 grand a year and she's the perfect mom and so on and so forth, like you need to wake up. It, it doesn't work that way. She doesn't exist because woman isn't designed to fulfill your every want and need. You need to learn how to love your wife's soul more than you love her body. She's not your donkey, not your get-my-meal woman, okay? She's not some combination of maid and sex slave, Andy, all right? <laughs> Listen, you're called, you're called to sacrificially love your wife like Christ loved the church, all right? So when a, when a man comes into a marriage and says, my wife is supposed to be all this, and all your hope is wrapped up in what you expect him to be, she's going to let you down. She's going to fail your ridiculous, idolatrous standards. And conflict's going to be right there, ready and waiting. Okay? So your wife, she's awesome, but she's not God. And women, I better be careful here, all right? Listen to me. Listen, sisters, all right? There's a reason. Those, those Nora Roberts books and Danielle Steele and like Fifty Shades of Grey, all that stuff is real big in our culture right now. Women have a tendency of kind of visualizing the perfect man. Listen, hey, I've seen those magazines at the grocery store, and you guys ought to be embarrassed, all right? These things are <laughs> lighting up a little bit. I'm joking here, guys, okay? All right, so here's the deal. People Magazine, they print every year, Sexiest Man Alive, and women just buy it up, right? Ecclesiastes 3 says that that you have eternity woven in your heart. And you're longing, you're longing for something that will fill that God-shaped hole. So when you expect your man to be the total package, like he helps you with all the house stuff that you hate, and he's a big deal at work and around town, and he makes awesome money, and he's got rock-hard abs, and he's thoughtful and creative and romantic and blah, blah, blah. You want to be married to millionaire Superman Jesus, all right? Listen, it doesn't work that way. So if you're projecting all these expectations on him and nagging him along the way about what he's not, then, then your idolatry is smothering your man. So if you find your man starting to kind of volunteer for more overtime at work, or he's picking up a lot more hobbies, or maybe kind of hanging out in the man cave or the garage a lot more, I'm not saying he's in the right to avoid you, but I am saying you better check yourself. 
Because it might be that he's just trying to get out from underneath the weight of all these expectations you have. So you, so you need to look inside your heart and say, okay, is, is my man, or really the version of the man that I want, has that become an idol? Very thankful for a godly man who loves his wife and kids the way he's supposed to. That's an awesome thing. Uh, but still, your man makes a crummy God. And if how you want your man to be is ultimate in your life, he's going to fail. So what happens when men and women come into marriage and they say, uh, my, my man or wife, my husband or wife needs to be all this, or, or, or singles go, if I could just find this type of person, and all our hope is wrapped up in these people and we want them to be our functional saviors, it's not going to happen. They're going to fail you and let you down. So, so if you're idolizing a mate too much, including the mate that you think you want, then maybe you need to lower or change your standards. Your, your expectations are going to be unrealistic, and, and you need to find the fullness of life in Jesus Christ and not some broken human being who's going to let you down. So listen to me. Spouses are awesome, but they make crummy gods. The last relationship I want to talk about is children. I've already kind of ticked off all the men and the women, so I just want to beat up the parents now a little bit, all right? I'm kidding. Listen, parents, I love you guys and I love your kids. But if you're a parent, I want, I want you to look up at me and say in your heart, let's say this in your heart. My kid is not going to be a professional athlete. You, you can do it. Okay, you can get there. Sometimes we want to vicariously relive our own idols through our kids. And you expect your kid to be the best at everything that you love when you're growing up. And you're kind of ticked off at them when they're not. And that's idolatry. So if you're continually frustrated at your kids because they're not this exact image of what you want them to be, you may be raising an idol. So listen, I've got kids, and we've done, we've done like the sports thing where we see the dad screaming at the five-year-old because he's not jacking home runs the way, the way they practice and everything. It, it's idolatry, okay? Idolatry is, is oftentimes about fear and control. And what better way for that to rear its head than in parenting? You try to make your kids be this version of what you want them to be, and then it damages their self-worth and yours along the way when they're not that. That's idolatry. If you've got kids that are, that are dictating everything about your house, listen to me, your kids' extracurricular activities should not govern your home. So you got the nine-year-old kid come up saying, Mom, where's my cleats? Dad, we got to go to practice, and yada, and on it goes. Everything is driven around the kids. It's a problem. And, and you may have seen it, I know I have more than once, where after a 15 or 20 year window of just getting these kids on their way, you've got empty nesters who are on deck for a divorce because you've got two people living together that don't even know each other. All right. So if you'll drop everything, including your relationship with the Lord, just to fulfill your kids' wants, you're setting the whole family up for, for failure. Okay, so parents, our goal is to love our kids and, and we want them to love the Lord with all that they are and we raise them the best we can with what we have and then we send them out into the world like little missionaries, okay? So, so whether you're single or just a couple for now or you've got a van full of kids in tow, listen to me, you and your stuff and your relationships and your kids, they all make crummy gods. They're good things, but not God, okay? You gotta restructure your life so that it's ordered rightly before the Lord, so biblically, a, a home revolves around a man sacrificially loving and leading his wife and kids. You've got a couple whose heartbeat is the gospel and who is imparting to their children life lessons about a creator who loves them and longs to save them from a broken and hurting world. That's what parenting is, and that's what the family should look like. Okay, so the first big idol was self, the second was relationships, and the third idol is sports. Now listen to me. I'm not down on sports. 
Really like football and basketball. Like like watching them. Fun to play and watch. Uh, NASCAR and golf are boring, but they're great for nap time for me. Okay, so there's nothing nothing wrong with sports. But here's the deal, though. In our culture, sports is God to many. It occupies a huge amount of time and, and um, emotional investment and money to a lot of people. And this can be an individual problem, or it can be it can become quickly a family problem. Listen to what Paul Tripp wrote. He said. The true love of your heart will be revealed by what you grieve and what you celebrate. Every day we are sad, mad, upset, or disappointed by something. And every day we are excited, happy, joyful, pumped, or thankful for something. It is at the intersection between sadness and celebration that the true love of our hearts is exposed. So, my sports fans, let me ask you, what grieves you more, a lost person in your family or your team just losing in March Madness? What brings you more joy? Maybe your favorite team or your kid's team crushing the arch rival, or a spirit-filled worship service with the Lord and your brothers and sisters? Guys, Americans are spending about $30 billion a year on pro sports. It doesn't include merchandise. Families uh, are spending about $7 billion in team sports. And when I say team sports, that does not include school sports. That's extracurricular above and beyond. All the traveling leagues, all that kind of stuff, $7 billion. So, so families are traveling on weekends and they're not doing life with other believers because their kid has another practice or a tournament or whatever the next thing is. And sports ultimately puts God in the back seat of many American families. You'll yell and scream with excitement at every match for your kids, but you really couldn't care less about life groups or making disciples. That's called idolatry. Some of you would not dare miss a Chiefs game, but you think nothing of skipping out on, on church, on fellowshipping with your, your, your fellow believers. Maybe you can, quote, you can quote all your players' names and their statistics and you know what the head coach is doing right and wrong and everything that needs to happen with the team this year, but you care nothing to study the Word of God or invest any kind of effort towards things of the Lord. Listen, guys, it's honestly, I'm not down on sports at all, but if your wife is avoiding you for a few hours after your team loses or if you're neglecting your family because of sports or hobbies, that's idolatry. So, so again, all these things, you and your relationships and your sports and, and your kids and your created things, they're not bad by themselves, but they make crummy gods. So what do we do about this? Because we've seen in this whole series that God is calling the righteous to live by faith. We don't want to depend on idols or created things. So let's finish the rest of the text. Look at Habakkuk 2.20 with me. Habakkuk 2.20 says, But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Now, if you remember the first two verses we looked at, the Chaldeans made idols that were speechless, right? And anything these idols said or did, it was all based off demonic forces and lies behind it, just deceiving people. And now the, the, verse, the last verse in the chapter says that God is in his temple and the earth should keep silent. So I don't want you to misunderstand this verse. God is not saying, hush up, don't bother me. He's not like that kind of jerk dad who's tired after a long day at work and doesn't want to deal with his kids. And this isn't God telling us not to pray to him anymore because Habakkuk turns right around in chapter 3 and prays to God, right? So this verse 20, it, it starts with the word but. And as you know, but is a contrasting word. So God is setting himself vastly apart from, from these silent, inanimate idols that we see in verses 18 and 19. So unlike these idols who have no life, these created things like the baby doctor who can't help us, we have a God who is alive. He's awesome, and he sits enthroned on the heavens, and he's the only one deserving of our worship. 
and silence is commanded so that we're not busy talking, we're not distracted by all the created things, and we miss the awesome gravity of our sovereign Lord. So God's word is it's ultimately a self-disclosure of, of who he is and how he is. And we learn his ways and what he's expecting of us, including lessons like how to live a righteous life of faith. So in our struggle with defeating idolatry and trusting in God alone, we need reverent silence and focus on the only living God who can provide a way out of these things. So what's the answer to our problem with idols? Well, don't turn there, but I want to read two more verses for you. We're just about done. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. Chapter 1 out of Hebrews, verses 1 and 2. It says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. Folks, the answer to the problem of idolatry lies in the person and work of our Messiah, Jesus Christ. So from Genesis to Revelation... This book is ultimately not about you. Rather, it's God laying his hand down, showing you how he's reconciling all things to himself in Christ. Put more simply, this book is about Jesus. So the Bible stories that our kids are learning about back there in Freshwater Kids right now, they ultimately all point to Jesus. So Noah and the ark, Moses and the exodus, David and Goliath, the boys in the fiery furnace, and and, um, Daniel in the lion's den, they're all ultimately foreshadowing of a Savior, the Messiah, who would one day make all things new. And almost every one of these Bible characters were abject failures. Our Bible heroes consist of murderers, drunks, adulterers, people with little faith, and so on. And the reason for that is because it's not that they're awesome, it's that God's awesome. And he's pulled them out of that pit and given them life and purpose. And it's the same for us. Because when we're silent before the Lord in his holy temple, we are humbled. And we're better able to see his glory and keep him Keep him in the right spot in our hearts rather than those created things, okay? So all of us, we just have to admit, all of us are idolaters in one way or the other. It's something we all wrestle with. It's not fun feeling convicted and guilty before the Lord, but, but we know that the Lord reproves them who, those whom he loves, right? So we want to pray that the Holy Spirit would reveal to us where we need to repent and return to our faith. So... Here are just a few questions to consider when rooting out these idols in your heart. You're not going to be able to write them down. Just listen to these questions. What makes you feel secure? What do you love and hate most of all? How do you define success or failure in your life? What are you entitled to or what do you see as your rights? What occupies most of your thoughts in your free time? What image do you have of yourself or who you want to be? Do you struggle with submitting to authority or leadership? What scares you? What do you desire to control more than anything? What's something that you think you couldn't live without? Hebrews says in these last days that God has spoken to us through Jesus. So whether you're like a Christian struggling with that old man and these idols, trying to rip them out, that old flesh, or maybe you're someone who's hearing all this for the first time and you're, you're first now realizing that there's a God who loves you and desires to save you and be in relationship with you. No matter where you are, the response remains the same. Biblically, we are to repent and believe. So when we repent, we turn away from our sins, we turn away from that old man, and we believe. We believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is the only one that can provide us a way out of this life of sin and the death that we face. So if you haven't placed your faith and trust in him, you have an opportunity to do that here and now. All you have to do is repent and believe. 
with Easter right around the corner, I can't think of a better time than right now to cut that cancer out and start a new life with him. So if you want to respond to this invitation, there are three ways you can do that. In your worship guide, there's a bubble you can check that says, I want to follow Jesus. You can put that in the offering plates or the baskets as they come by or drop it at the connect table in the back and someone will get in touch with you. The second way is I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. During that song, if you want to talk, man, just slip out of the aisle. Come on back and I'll talk with you about what it looks like to follow Christ. And the third way is... um, you can catch me afterwards, or Pastor Josh will be in the back as well. If, if you're interested in hearing more about what it looks like to follow Christ and, and how that process begins, would love the opportunity to speak with you guys about it. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your word that is it's trustworthy in every way. And there, there are lessons in your word that are exciting and 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 fulfilling to us, God, as we see the value that you place on us. But there are lessons that are hard and convicting. And so I pray that, that when you bring conviction to us, God, that we would not run from you like the prodigal son, but instead we would press into you. We would repent and believe. Lord, we need your help to be placed on that path of life and purpose. So I pray that you would help us to hear clearly and that, that as a result of our time, you would change us. And thank you for the opportunity to spend time in your word with brothers and sisters. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Love you guys. Thank you.